0: Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful best friend. And as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father Heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to teach the Bible today here at the Trinity Church. God, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures which you have inspired to be written. I pray for each of us there would be a point, a takeaway, something that you would have us apply to our lives this week. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come to walk with us, and we ask for the grace now to walk with you in your good name. Amen. Well, as we jump into 1 John chapter two, let me tell you a little bit about me. I uh, I met my wife, Grace at the age of 17. She was a pastor's daughter and I was a Jack Catholic boy who wasn't a Christian, but kind of thought that maybe he was. Um, We started dating and we were married at the age of 21. So now we've been together 28 years. We've been married 24 years and uh, Grace is very sweet. She would not tell you this, so I will. But the early years of the marriage were hard because one of us, one of us, was a little um, harsh, difficult to deal with, and would start conversations in a fairly combative way. Now, I won't say who it was, Um, it was me. Of course it was me. And so what would happen is we would get into this cycle of conversations where when there was something that was sensitive or something that was needing to be corrected or something that was a little difficult, I would start the conversation harshly, harshly. Uh, And there's ways to do this. Sometimes it's raising your voice, calling somebody a name, attacking them, just showing contempt or disdain, um, or just sort of coming at them in a bull rush way to where they feel a little overwhelmed and defensive. And so I I, I would engage Grace in these conversations, and they really weren't conversations, they were conflicts. And it didn't invite her into hearing from me, it made her defensive toward me, rightly so. And then over the years, we've, I've had to repent of that and learn from that and change and grow. And, and by God's grace, I, I, I hope and I trust and I pray that I'm doing better. And what's interesting is how a conversation starts really ultimately often determines where a conversation ends. Uh, there's a guy named John Gottman. He's a leading researcher, and he wanted to figure out with married couples, why does some stay married? Why does some get divorced? Why does some work it out? And why for some does it break up? So we brought them together into basically an apartment type setting. It was a laboratory, and he would observe them having conversations, trying to find... Uh, measurable variables that would say these things lead to conflict, these things lead to resolution, these things lead to a broken relationship, these things lead to a restored relationship. And he studied couples over the course of many years, and he would look at their uh, feedback biochemically, and he, he decided that there was a number of factors that would cause a relationship to go bad. And the number one thing, the first thing, was conversations with a harsh startup, with a harsh startup. And that would set the conversation in a trajectory that was not going to be uniting, but it was going to be dividing. It wasn't going to be healthy. It was going to be unhealthy. It wasn't going to lead to love. It was going to lead to hate. And so he says he could predict divorce with a 93% success rate, which is pretty amazing. That being said, what John is going to talk to us about today are some things that we could bristle, we could be offended by, get defensive of. He's gonna say that we have sin in our life. Most of us are not really excited to hear about that. He's gonna tell us that we murdered God, which could offend you. And thirdly, he's gonna call some of us liars. Uh, So he has some strong things to say and how he begins instructing us is really crucial because if it's harsh startup, we're going to end up defensive and combative and arguing. And what I want you to see in this is not just what John says, but how John says it. And it's a lesson for all of our relationships, how we interact at work with our spouse, even for you parents, how you engage your kids when they're driving you crazy. Sometimes there are things that we need to talk about and, and the difference between a conversation that's an invitation and a conflict that's combative is really the startup where you begin. You get that? So as we jump into 1 John chapter two today, I want you to see um, how John begins his conversation with us. Um, he says this in 1 John uh, chapter two, verse one. Here's how he starts. My little children. True or false, that's not a harsh startup. He doesn't say, you liars murdered God. He's going to get there in a minute. Instead, (laughs) my little children. Hmm. Here's the point. God tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. The point is that there shouldn't be correction without connection. This is a good parenting lesson. Now, John here is a man who's between 80 and 100 years old. He's at the end of his life. He's walked with Jesus for a very long time. He was the youngest of the disciples. He was probably walking with Jesus literally on the earth when he was in his 20s. At this point, he's been walking with Jesus for 60 to 80 years. At this point, he's got the father heart of God. And at this point, it's like a dad or a grandpa taking the kids or the grandkids, sitting them on the couch and says, okay, we're going to talk about something. But first things first, I want you to know how much I love you and how much I'm for you. See where that sets the tone? How many of you, if someone brings something to you that could be a little difficult to hear, if it starts with this disposition of, I love you, I care for you, I'm here for you, I wanna help you, and they're smiling and the body posture's warm, you become a little more receptive to what they're about to say, okay? That's exactly what John is doing. My little children, my dear children, you'll read this as well as you go through 1 John, he'll hit it in a few verses, he calls people his beloved. True or false, that sounds like a grandpa. How many of you are grandpas or a grandma? That, That sounds like a grandma or a grandpa. That's very loving. It's very empathetic. It's very emotionally present. And it's very inviting. It's very inviting. I need you to know that that's God's heart toward you. I need you to know that that's my heart toward you. And I need you to know that God tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. You will see this pattern over and over and over in 1 John. Here's who you are, so here's what I need you to do. Here's who you are, so here's what I need you to do. And so here's the key. As Christians, we don't work for our identity, we work from our identity. God doesn't say, if you do these things, then I'll love you. God says, I love you, so I'm gonna help you do these things. Do you see the difference? One is where you're trying to perform and please and earn. The other is where you're loved, served and helped. It's very different. Some of you have a religious view of God that he's far away, that he's a bit angry at you, that you're not sure he approves of you. And unless you get your act together, he's probably done with you. That's not the father heart of God. The father heart of God is he loves you like a parent loves a child, like a grandparent loves a grandchild. And before he tells you what to do, he tells you who you are. He says that you're his son or his daughter. He calls you his beloved, beloved. Okay? I need you to understand that so that it's not a confrontation when you read the Bible, but it's an invitation when you read the Bible. That you don't come fighting what God has to say, but welcoming what God has to say because that's his heart toward you, amen? And do you see the implications for how we interact with our spouse, coworkers, our children, our enemies. It's not just saying that which is true, it's doing so with a heart of affection and well-being and concern for the other. So moving right along, um, he goes on to say, because Jesus died for your sin, you could put your sin to death. So now he's gonna talk to us about our sin, something that we could bristle about. And I don't wanna talk about my sin and don't point out the faults and flaws and failures in my life. And don't talk to me about the things that I've done wrong. I'm a little defensive, I'm a little insecure. And ultimately what he says is no, I do love you very much. So let's talk about something that's very important. First John chapter two, uh, second half of verse one through verse two. I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. What's the Christian's goal? Not to sin. Do you you get that? How many of you know that's the goal and you still have never met that goal, right? Every athlete is trying to hit every shot, right? Every uh, accountant is trying to balance every penny um, every musician is trying to nail every note. That's the goal. Every Christian is trying to obey every commandment. But, aren't you glad that's there? But if anyone does sin, because we will, right? What, what happens when it comes to talking about sin, uh, some are too permissive, some are too punitive. Those that are too permissive, it's well, we're all sinners, Jesus died for sin, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. Those that are too punitive, here's what God's word said, you fall short, look at all your faults, flaws, and failures, we're going to pound you like a nail. All right, how many of you come from a background that was too permissive? How many of you come from a background that was too punitive? What I love here, it's not permissive or punitive. Uh, he, he, he holds up God's standard, and that is sinless perfection. And he also acknowledges our fallen humanity. We will fall short in sin. It's, it's both end. and. And I want to say this too. There's a difference between sin and mistakes. Okay? Um, sins are things that are against the word of God, the will of God, and the way of God. That's what a sin is. Sin is something that's against the word of God, the scriptures. It's against the will of God. That's not what God wants us to say or do. And it's against the way of God. That's not how Jesus lived. That's not the example that Jesus set. There's a difference between a sin and a mistake. A mistake is part of our humanity and mistakes are what we make to learn. Okay? We've got the children here in the family style Bible study. As you let your kids grow, as you see your kids grow, the way they're going to learn and grow is by making mistakes, amen? They start walking, they fall down. You hand them a spoon to learn how to feed themselves and they're wearing it, okay? Until they figure out how to use the spoon. Um, You teach your child how to write and initially they're gonna write a lot of letters wrong until they figure out how to write a letter right. You put them on a bike, they're gonna pedal and fall over. And then you pick them up, kiss and pray for them. And, and eventually they'll figure out how to ride the bike by tipping the bike over. Life moves forward. We make progress. We learn and grow through making mistakes. And the problem that happens with people who are religious, they can't distinguish between sin and mistakes. And their goal becomes to never make a mistake, which means they never take a risk and they never do anything. Okay? You and I are gonna make mistakes. This is part of our growth process. And there's a difference between a sin and a mistake. Just like we'd let a kid, you know, make a mistake, learn how to do it right. So God is our father. He lets us make mistakes till we figure out how to do things right. Why do I tell you this? Because sometimes religious people, they'll put everything in the bucket of sin and all of a sudden they're, um, they're really hammering people for things that are not sins. And they're also sort of hammering themselves for things that are not sins. I'll give you an example. Some years ago, we were sitting in a Red Robin, our kids, we had little kids at the time. We've got five kids and our kids were little. And next to us was another large family. and. Uh, the dad asked for a drink for the kid. Well, the server brought the kid, and it was a little kid, like three years old, one of those big glasses, it was made out of glass, filled with ice, so it was sweating. And what happens to the, to the glass? It gets really slippery. And the kid went to pick up the glass with their little hands, and what happens? They spill it. And the dad disciplined the child for spilling the drink. That's a mistake, not a sin. If anything, the dad should have spanked himself for not getting a cup of the lid, amen? I mean, because the the, the kid didn't sin, right? The the glass is too big, it's too wet, and their hands are too small. That's not a sin. They made a mistake. They don't know how to hold the glass yet. A parent comes in and disciplines a child for mistakes and puts a lot of pressure on a child for mistakes. And I wanna say this, that we're the children of God, and God understands that we're going to make mistakes, and that's different than committing sins. And this needs to affect how we treat one another. And this affects how we raise our kids. How many of you, and don't raise your hand, especially if you're here with your folks, but be raised in a highly religious home where you would get punished discipline for mistakes. It wasn't even a sin. It's not against the word of God, the will of God, the way of God. It's, it's not a moral error. It's not a violation of the character of God. You're, you just made a mistake. Okay, I wanna distinguish that because God has a father's heart and and he calls us his kids. And the way he parents us is the way that we need to parent our kids. So if you want to read a good parenting book, read the Bible, understand that God's father, you're his child. That's what he just told us. And the way he treats us is the way we should treat one another, starting with our kids. So he's going to talk to us here about our Sins. But I want to be careful that we don't have just one category of sin and everything goes in the category. We have another category of mistakes, and, and, and we learn as we go. He says that um, our goal is not to sin, so that's our goal. But we will sin. So again, it's not too permissive and it's not too punitive, it's it's very understanding and reasonable. But if anyone does sin, now he's going to talk about Jesus. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, okay? So now he's talking about sin in your life, right? He's talking about sin in my life. And when he's talking about sin, what he's saying is we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And the father sent the son and he is a couple of different things. Um, He's righteous. That means Jesus is without sin. Jesus is never violated. Uh, The word, the will, or the way of God. He was obedient in every way. No sin in Jesus' life. He's the righteous one. And he's also our advocate. This is really important. How many of you like watching those television shows that are courtroom dramas? You like those? I I like those. I find those intriguing. In a courtroom drama, there's four people. There's, There's the judge who sits there and hears the case and renders a verdict. There's the accuser who brings all of the accusations and the allegations, um, there is the defendant, the accused, the one who's on trial, and then with them is their advocate or their attorney, right, the courtroom scene. What he's saying here is God the Father is the judge, that we are on trial and that our accuser is Satan. Revelation twelve ten says that he's the accuser, of the children of God, that he accuses them day and night. And what Satan continually does is he brings forth our sin Here's what they said, here's what they did. Here's what they failed to say. Here's what they failed to do. Here's how they violated your laws. Father, you wrote the laws. They violated the laws. And then what happens is there we are in court being judged. And some of you live with this. You live under condemnation. You live under shame. I I didn't intend to share this, but I, I feel like I should. Some of you hear and or will say to yourself, you, Blank, you failed, you are dirty, you're unforgiven, you're unloved, you're undeserved. Anytime you start hearing you, you know that's your accuser. You're being accused. He's the accuser of the children of God. He accuses them day and night, Revelation 12, 10. Because I don't get up in the morning and say, you're gonna brush your teeth. You're gonna have breakfast. (laughs) You're gonna gas up the truck and go to work. I don't talk to myself in the second person. I talk to myself in the first person. When you are hearing something or saying something in the second person, you know that your accuser is accusing you. You, 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 (laughs) you, you. you. Does that make sense? That's the demonic realm. That Satan is accusing us, that we are on trial, and we're hearing about all of the bad things we've ever said and done, all of the good things we failed to say and do, and we're just sort of devastated and shocked. And what do we say? And here we are in front of God and it's all true. And I did do that. I did say that I have failed, I'm guilty. And Jesus is our advocate and he stands up and he says, actually father, what's being said, that's not true. That's a lie. They didn't say that, they didn't do that. That's a false accusation. And father, they, they said, or they did some of that, but, but their accuser is a liar and he's added a lot to it. And, and that's not entirely accurate. And actually father on that one, they did it, they're guilty. And Satan says, well, so can we send them to hell? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Cause I'm their advocate. I forgave them. I paid the penalty. The penalty was the death penalty and I paid the death penalty. So now they're forgiven. And and the accuser just keeps hurling his accusations and and our advocate keeps correcting that which is untrue and then explaining how the penalty has been paid and the sin has been forgiven and all has been cared for. And the father is the one who is holding court. And that's, that's Jesus. Some of you condemn yourselves and God doesn't condemn you. Some of you judge yourselves and Jesus has already forgiven you. Some of you allow the accuser to continually haul you into the emotional, spiritual court where you just have to relive the worst moments of your entire life, the worst things that you've ever done. And Jesus would say, no, I'm your advocate. I've already taken care of that, case dismissed. We're moving forward with life. This is critically important because some people, particularly those with a tender conscience, they live haunted by their sin. They live haunted by their sin and the accuser keeps accusing them. And as a result, it robs them of their freedom and joining Christ. So how do we get our freedom and joy in Christ? And not only is Jesus our righteous one, he's our advocate. The third thing I wanna talk about is he's our propitiation. It's a big word, but it's here in our Bible. And my goal is not to make you feel stupid, but to take the big words in the Bible and explain them in simple ways. Um, when we moved to uh, Phoenix, we road trip down and we'd drive along and we'd look and, hey, look at that, look at that, look at that. You enjoy the sights. And then there were a few sites that we would pull over, get out of the car and take a little more time to look around, take photos and really take them in. As we're journeying together through 1 John, this is a place where we're gonna pull the car over. We're gonna get out and look around for a little bit. What does this word mean? What does this word mean? What does this word propitiation mean? Mean. Let's pull over, let's take a look at this. It's a word that appears four times in the New Testament. Some of your translations will call it sacrifice of atonement, which is basically what it means. Some of your translations will call it expiation, which really isn't a great translation. Um, Bible translations are like ice cream flavors. There's a lot of good ones. Um, We've all got our favorites, and there's also a few that aren't as good as others. The translation that I'm using here, I appreciate that it uses that word. Um, This is the English Standard Version of the Bible, and it's the one that I prefer to preach out of because it's a more literal translation. And though many people, most people probably don't even know what this word means, it's really important, so I want to explain it to you. And when we're talking about propitiation, what we're talking about is the death of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. The most important person in the history of the world, Jesus, and the most important event in the history of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus. And I've got it in your notes. I won't put it up on the slides, but it's really four things. Number one, God is holy, we are sinful. That's where it starts. Uh, I could give you many verses for every one of these points for the sake of some brevity. Um, My brevity is not brevity. Uh, I just give you one for each. But Leviticus 19.2, God says, "'You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy.'" So God is holy. That means he is other, he is sinless, he is perfect in all his ways. Um, there are many attributes of God in the Bible. God is sovereign, he's in charge. God is good and God is loving and God is merciful. We looked at it in 1 John um, last week that God is light. Uh, and 1 John 4 will tell us that God is love, all of these attributes of God. The number one attribute of God that's mentioned more than any other attribute in the whole Bible is that God is holy, God is holy. Secondarily, we are sinful. We already looked at it in 1 John 1, verse eight. He says it this way, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The God is holy and we are sinful. There's the problem. There's the problem. Point number two, God hates sin. When I tell you that God hates sin, some of you will bristly say, no, God doesn't hate. God holds all emotions perfectly. We were made in the image and likeness of God. So we have the same emotions of God, but God's emotions are perfect. So when he hates, it's a perfect hatred. When he's angry, it's a perfect anger. Our problem is sometimes our hatred or our anger, it's imperfect, but God hates sin. God loves people, but he hates sin. And the problem is that people sin and how can God deal with the sin without destroying the person that he loves? That's, his, that's the thing that God has to do for us. And let me say this as well before I read Proverbs 6. We should hate sin and we do. How many of you, when you watch the news and you hear a woman was assaulted, you, say, you hate that. That shouldn't happen. A child was abused. You hate that. That should not happen, right? Someone was going to help. And as a result, they were harmed. There was a, a story recently where I, th- I think it was a, a fire Fighter was going on a call and they were killed in a domestic violence dispute. I hate That should never happen. Someone is going to help and as a result, they're harmed. That should never happen. That's God's heart towards sin. Because God is good, he hates evil. Because God is holy, he hates that which is unholy. I read, there are many places, but let me give you Proverbs 6, 6 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Here's the list. Haughty eyes. We would call it self-esteem, but God calls it pride. A lying tongue saying things that are dishonest and untrue. Hands that shed innocent blood, murder and harming people. A heart that devises wicked plans because God can see the heart and the motive and the intent behind the heart. Feet that make haste to run to evil. People who go out of their way to do bad things A false witness who breathes out lies. That's not true, you're not telling the truth. You're you're falsely accusing and condemning someone. And one who sows discord among the brothers. One who causes division, separation, animosity, hostility between Christians. Anybody who comes in and says, I wanna get these Christians to hate one another, to argue with one another, to fight with one another. God says, I hate that. And in the age of social media and the internet, some people think that's a ministry and it's not. That's not a ministry. That's something that God hates. So God is holy, we are sinful and God hates sin. Now God loves people, but he hates sin. And the problem is that people sin, so God has to deal with the sin and also preserve the person. So point number three, our sin arouses God's wrath. That God's wrath is his response to sin. Nobody really talks about wrath anymore. We're in a day when sort of God's just a big counselor and you know, he gives us all a hug and sends us home with a little positive self-help for the week. And the truth is that God's a father and he loves us, but the truth is that the Bible talks a lot about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is mentioned just in the Old Testament alone about 20 different words in about 600 occasions. Years ago, I looked them all up just to find it all in the Bible. It's a big theme. It's not remotely hidden over in the corner. The wrath of God is actually quite central. It's a big mega theme. And there are parts of the whole Old Testament that illustrate the wrath of God. Whole towns like Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. A flood comes and destroys everyone and everything that was alive on the earth in that day. That's wrath. That's justice, that's punishment, that's dealing with sin and folly and rebellion. And, and what God does is God provides a way in the Old Testament before the coming of the Lord Jesus, that his wrath is propitiated, it is diverted, it is placed on one who is a substitute and thereby it is removed from the other, the guilty offended party who deserves it. Um, I, I know I'm going quick, but let me, let me give you a few examples. So in Genesis, God's people um, move into Egypt. The next book of the Bible, Exodus, they grow to be a nation of millions of people. And God wants to deliver them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. So he's going to pour out his wrath on the nation of Egypt because of the way they've treated God's people. So death will come to every home and take the firstborn son in every home. This is a big deal. I'm a firstborn son, I'd be gone. My son, Zach, who's here, he'd be gone. Death is coming to the firstborn son in every home that does not propitiate their sin. So what they do, they take an animal as a substitute, they confess their sins, The family would sacrifice the animal. They took the blood from the animal and they literally painted the doorpost to their home. Do you remember this? And then the wrath of God was poured out on Egypt, but God's wrath passed over every home that had their sin propitiated by a substitute. The substitute paid the penalty of death for their sin. They acknowledged and confessed their sin. As a result, the wrath of God was propitiated, It was diverted to the substitute from them and then the wrath of God passed over that home so that no one died in that home. And so Jews that celebrate Passover, that's, that's what they're celebrating. That God's wrath was propitiated and God's wrath passed over them because of a substitute. Moving forward then you get the, uh, the sacrificial system and the temple is built and there's a high priest who represents Jesus as the mediator between God and man and the whole sacrificial system was that we as sinners would acknowledge our sin, that in the court of law between a holy and righteous God and us, there is sin, there is transgression, there is offense. And so we would go to the temple, the people of God would, and we would give a sacrifice and the sacrifice would be the substitute for our sin. And as a result, the, the justice and the wrath would be poured out on the substitute and then it would be propitiated, diverted away from us all the way to Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The Jews would simply call it the day. It was the biggest day of the year, it was their Super Bowl. And what happened on the day of atonement is the whole nation would come together and they would confess their sins. And the the high priest, the mediator between the people and God, He was the placeholder until the coming of Jesus. He would go into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God on the earth, and he would lay hands over the substitute animal without spot or blemish, showing that it was without sin and it was a sinless substitute that was offering its life in the place of sinners. And the high priest would confess the sins of the people and then the animal would be put to death and their blood would flow and God's wrath would be propitiated, diverted away from the guilty sinners and to the substitute. So the whole of Israel, all of the Old Testament is is about this substitution and the sacrificial system and, and the shedding of blood for the remission of sins, which is what Hebrews echoes until Jesus comes. And all of this is foreshadowing of the forthcoming of Jesus. And Jesus begins his public ministry and his cousin John the baptizer sees him and he says, behold, who knows the line? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is righteous. He's the lamb without spot or blemish. He's going to substitute himself for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus... Point number four, propitiates the wrath of God. Everything that happened to Jesus should happen to you and should happen to me. Everything that happened to Jesus should happen to you and happen to me. But instead, the righteous one is also our advocate. He steps into the courtroom and he says, yes, they're guilty, but I've paid their penalty, so they are free to go and live a new life. And sometimes what happens is as Christians we will th- say things like, well, Jesus died for your sin. And then we move right along. Let me tell you, that's when we got to hit the brakes, pull the car over, get out and look around. So as we plant this church together, foundational is the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus. Okay? So let, let, let me explain a little bit about crucifixion because because we haven't seen it. Every once in a while, it'll happen, you know, and sometimes they'll post it on the internet, but as a general rule, we don't see it. In, in the days of Jesus, they were ruled by the Roman empire, a godless nation, and they would use crucifixion as state-sponsored terrorism, and it was a way to keep people in line. It's not unlike jihadists today, putting beheadings on the internet. It's a way of causing fear in people and basically saying whatever they believed or however they behaved, don't do that, or we'll do that to you, and, and it's terrifying. So the day that Spartacus fell in battle, they actually crucified 6,000 people in one day along a stretch of Roman highway. Imagine you're on horseback or foot going for a walk, 6,000 men, usually crucified at eye level. Most of the time they were crucified at eye level, so you're looking at them. When they crucify a woman, they tended to turn her around, but the men would face you. This was done openly and publicly in places where you could see it. This would be like out on the street or at the grocery store. The point was state-sponsored terror. When Jesus was a little boy, maybe around three or four years of age, according to the historians, there was a Jewish uprising that was put down by a mass crucifixion of the Romans. So Jesus may have even witnessed the crucifixion of his Jewish friends, fathers, when he was a little boy. He may have actually witnessed crucifixion. And when it comes to crucifixion, we know that the Lord Jesus was betrayed by a pretend friend named Judas, Uh, that he was falsely accused, arrested, he was beaten, he was scourged. Uh, The children are present, I won't get into the details, but when Good Friday comes next year, I will. Um, I'll get very explicit with exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus, but he was scourged. Isaiah says that he was marred beyond human likeness, that after a sleepless night and beating by a mob, scourged, His vital organs are strained, he's dehydrated, he is losing blood, he is struggling mightily. Jesus is then forced to carry his crossbar, which weighed upwards of 100 pounds, and it was hewn rough timber on on his barren back and he was forced to carry it to his place of crucifixion. Then they take the Lord Jesus, the righteous one, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one without any spot or blemish. He's a carpenter who's driven many nails and they lay him on a Roman cross and they nail him with the equivalent of railroad ties through the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body, the hands and the feet. They then lift him up to be mocked at, jeered at. They put a crown of thorns to mock him as the king of the Jews. On his way carrying the cross, the Bible records that Jesus fell with a crossbar on his back. The doctors would tell you that this is the equivalent of a head-on collision in a car where you're thrust into the steering wheel with no airbag. If you don't go to the doctor, you're gonna die of a chest contusion. So that's physically where our God is. And he is struggling and he is straining and he is sweating and he is bleeding and he is dying. And who's there to watch it all? John, the guy who writes this. Jesus' best friend, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who had walked with Jesus as his near and dear friend for three years. And then there are seven final words that Jesus says from the cross. I'll just hit two of them. One, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, the theologians will tell you that the father turned his back on the son. In that moment, Jesus, was the propitiation for our sins. Jesus took our place. He was the substitute, just like the animal in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So here it is the living Jesus who was put to death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. The great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he called it the great exchange. And what he says is that Jesus took our place and put us in his place. So he dies and we live. He takes our unrighteousness and he gives us his righteousness. He takes our rebellion and he gives us his obedience. He takes all of our sin and he gives us all of his forgiveness. That's what Jesus does. That's why we call it good news. So if, if you're a Christian, God doesn't punish you. He's already punished Jesus. God is not angry with you. His wrath was poured out on Jesus in your place. That he can look at you and say, you're my beloved. He can look at you and say, you're my child. God found a way to make his enemy into family through the propitiation of sin through his son. So the wrath of the father was poured out on the son. You get that? Now, this allows God to still hate sin and love us. This allows God to deal with sin and also forgive us. This is, this is amazing that God would do this. I don't know about you. I don't have these kinds of detailed plans to sacrifice my beloved son for my enemies who haven't even asked for it but that's the goodness of God, amen? That's the tremendous love of God. So Jesus is there suffering and dying. They wanna get him to stop speaking because he's talking about Father, forgive them um, and such. And they take a, a sponge and they shove it in his mouth. And uh, when we were on tour in Israel and, and in Greece and in Turkey, we've been to archeological digs and we visited the locations in the Bible with theologians and archeologists and professors as a family. And I found that a sponge was a a common uh, part of the deployment for a soldier heading off into battle. It was part of their military gear for the field. That as you're deployed out in the field, if you needed to go to the bathroom, you would take out your standard issue sponge, you would put it on a stick, you would sop it in wine vinegar, which acted as a disinfectant, and that was your field toilet paper. The soldiers take one of those and shove it in Jesus' mouth to get him to stop talking. That's what we do to God. And then with that kind of taste on his lips, Jesus says, Father, forgive them and it is finished. That's unbelievable, that being treated like that with that taste in your mouth, that what comes out of Jesus is love. Pure, beautiful, forgiving, substitutionary, propitiation, love. It's, it's amazing. This is why 2000 years later, we can't stop talking about Jesus. We, We can't stop learning about Jesus. We can't stop loving Jesus. Amen. We have an advocate and he's righteous and he's the propitiation for our sins. And anybody in the whole world that turns to him and turns from sin can be finished. Some of you struggle with your sin. You say, how do I put my sin to death? The first thing is to remember Jesus already died for it and because he died for it, you can put it to death. So whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever sin you're carrying, whatever sin you're ensnared by, because Jesus died for it, you can put it to death. Amen? So when he says, you know, I don't want you to sin, but if you do, Jesus took care of it. But because Jesus taking care of it, you can sin less in your life, though you won't be sinless for your whole life. His next point, since Jesus walks with you, you can walk with Jesus. Not only did Jesus die for your sin, and here's the great news. God comes to the earth, the man, God, man, Jesus Christ. He literally walks on the earth with his friend, John. John's there to see him preach teach, heal. Jesus literally walks to his place of crucifixion and he dies. And he says it is finished and he finishes all the work for the propitiation of our sin. And then he's buried and three days later on a Sunday, that's why we meet on Sunday, Jesus gets out of his grave and he walks away from it. And since John has been there walking with Jesus through all of this, he's gonna continually use this theme of walking with Jesus. He says it here, and this is how we know we have come to know him. Some of you would ask, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, he's gonna have three different tests that come through the book. One is belief, one is behavior, one is belonging. You'll see these themes in the book as you read it. Do you believe in Jesus? If you don't, you need to believe in Jesus today. And I hate to tell you this, it's really true. If you don't belong to Jesus right now, if you don't believe in Jesus, the wrath of God is on you. You're living in the path of the wrath of God. And what happened to Jesus will happen to you. Hell is real. Jesus talked about it more than anyone. And people that don't know Jesus are going there forever. I need you to know that. And some of you may say, well, then I'm leaving this church. Don't stay and give your life to Jesus. The reason that hell is not advertised well in the Bible is God is trying to keep you from going there. He, He shows it in all of its horror so that you will be encouraged to have the wrath of God propitiated from you. You don't need to go to hell. Jesus went to the cross. You give your sin to Jesus. It's all taken care of. The wrath of God is propitiated. And now for the rest of your life, you're not headed to hell, you're headed to heaven. And you can walk with Jesus every step of the journey. That's the whole point. But the the tests are belief. Do you believe in Jesus? Behavior, is your life changing as you walk with Jesus? And belonging, are you walking with other people who are walking with Jesus? By this we know we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Is a liar and the truth is not in him. John's big point is this, you can't meet Jesus and not change. Some of you say, well, there's a lot that still needs to change. That's why you're still walking with him. In the Christian life, we do not believe that in this life, we will experience perfection. He already told us, if we say we have no sin, we're liars and the truth isn't in us. We've all got something to work on. A Christian is not perfect in this life, but a real Christian sees progress in this life. So let me say, this is important. At this church, we will not judge people by where we are. We will consider people by where they started. You could look at some, I can't believe you do that. Look at their life. Where did they start? Oh, you've actually made progress. You've made progress. And so we celebrate the progress and we encourage the progress and we encourage people to keep walking with Jesus and make more progress. And that includes us, that includes me. So we don't look at someone and judge them. We look at someone and say, well, where did you start and where are you? And do I see any progress? Because here's the big idea. You can't say, I met Jesus, what changed? Nothing. It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't work like that. You can't meet Jesus and not change, that's his point. And he says, if you say, I met Jesus and I love Jesus and I walk with Jesus and I don't obey Jesus and I don't listen to Jesus and I don't honor Jesus, he's saying, then you're a liar, you never really met Jesus. Now, let me be careful with this. I don't want you to take this and look at other people and say, yeah, I'm not sure you know Jesus. That's not the, you look at yourself. Okay, the whole point of this is not a telescope, but a mirror. I'm not looking at your life to see, no, it's a mirror. We look at our own life and say, hmm, what's changed? in? Do I believe in Jesus? Um, Do I belong with God's people? Is my behavior changing, those three tests? What's changed in my life? And I would just ask you, what's changed in your life since you've met Jesus? If you say nothing, then I would say, maybe you haven't met Jesus and today's the day you need to meet him and give him your sin and start walking with him. I know for me, God has been very gracious to me and very patient with me. Kind of like a dad with a kid who's a little bit of a handful. Uh, God's been a father to me in that way. But since meeting Jesus, I've changed and I'm changing. I'm changed and I'm changing. And and if you've met Jesus, you're changed and you're changing. And that's what John is, is saying. Jesus is willing to walk with you. And if you're walking with him, what happens is the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. And this is John's testimony. At this point, he's talking a lot about love and my beloved and my dear children. Early in his life, was he this loving, gracious, kind grandpa? No, him and his brother, their nicknames were the sons of thunder. These guys are like two barrels on a gun. I mean, they were, they were, they were very difficult. They asked Jesus to destroy a whole town filled with people to literally set them on fire and obliterate them. Okay. Many years later, he's talking about love and my dear children and the You're like, what happened to that guy? He'd been walking with Jesus for 60 or 80 years. The longer you walk with Jesus, and, and when you hear the word walk in the Bible, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. And the way we walk with Jesus is, number one, we recognize he's alive right now. Number two, we recognize that he's given us the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit so that literally God is with us and we're not forsaken or abandoned. This is why we read our Bible. Well, I'm gonna learn from Jesus. This is why we pray, I'm gonna talk to Jesus. That's why we get together with God's people. I wanna see what Jesus is teaching them so I can learn. And if there's a way for me to love and help and serve them, we're God's kids and the kids all need to hang together. And Jesus is our big brother and God is our father. And we do life together as a grace-centered family. That's how we do it. And so John literally walked with Jesus. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, he continued to walk with Jesus. And what he's saying is, don't say you've met Jesus and you walk with him if you're not becoming increasingly like him. And let me say this, this is the answer to sin. Um, Some of you would ask, okay, I have a habitual pattern of sin in my life. It's something I'm struggling with. It's a little dark, it's a little shameful, it's a little secret. And okay, the Holy Spirit's sort of highlighted that for me this morning, Pastor Mark. What do I do? And here's what I would say, invite Jesus into that place. Invite Jesus into that place and spend most of your time thinking about Jesus. There's a very godly movement leader. He's international. He leads a whole network of churches. He's he's just one of the godliest men I've ever met. Uh, He's from another country. And I remember sitting down with him some years ago and I asked him, I said, pastor, he's got, loves Jesus. Wife loves Jesus, kids love Jesus. They're a beautiful family. I said, how do you stay away from sin? How do you keep yourself from sin? And what he said sort of blew all my circuits. He said, uh, kind of scrunched up his nose, he said, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't really think about sin. I said, okay. He said, I just, I just try to spend all my time with Jesus. Oh, well, that's a good answer. Right? Because if you're saying, I'm looking at my sin, I'm devastated by my sin, I'm obsessed over my sin, how do I avoid my sin? Jesus is like, hang out with me. Oh, okay. Where's your sin? I don't know, it's back there. I'm with Jesus now. And Jesus is leading me away from my sin. The more I read the Bible and pray and worship and walk with him, I don't know. My sin just gets further and further away. I don't. So the center of your life is not your sin, it's your savior. As you walk with Jesus, you walk away from your sin. Amen? So if you're struggling, don't don't obsess over your sin. Spend time with your savior. That's what John is saying, walk with Jesus. It's a lifestyle. Some of you have been raised in environments where it's like, I gotta see the sin. I gotta acknowledge the sin. I gotta confess the sin. I gotta own the sin. I gotta... And Jesus is like, hello, I love you. Can we, can we go now? Like I already died for it. And so it's taken care of. How about we go do something else? Life together. His last point is this. Christian lip service is easy. Christian lifestyle is Hard. Um, what's the word? He's going to do it again, isn't he? He's going to tell you who you are before he tells you what to do. Some of you grew up and your dad never said, I love you. God's a father who says, I love you. I tell my kids so much that sometimes they're just like, I know. But my thought is if I tell them 10 million times, if they only remember one, they're okay, okay? God loves you. God's heart for you is a father's heart. You get that? And I love that John over and over and over, he's gonna use the word love about 40 times in five chapters. And again, he didn't start here, but he got here by walking with Jesus. So beloved means this, you are loved. You're loved. I just, I want you to just receive that and wear that. I'm loved. You're loved. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment. Okay, so sometimes the Bible says something new. Sometimes it says the same thing over and over and over. How many of you have had kids and you tell them the same thing over and over and over? Because right, sometimes kids, they don't learn, they don't listen. We're the children of God. Sometimes we don't learn, we don't listen. Sometimes in sermons, you'll hear me say the same thing. And you'd be like, he's already said that. It needs to be said again. And sometimes the Bible repeats itself because we didn't get it the first time. I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Continuing, at the same time, is it a new, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He already told us previously, that God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. And he's picking up on this theme of light and darkness. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a very old command that for some of you is also going to be new. And that is that because God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. We can walk with him in the light. We don't need to walk any longer in the darkness. And then he continues, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling." He's talking about two kinds of people, lip service and lifestyle. Lip service is, I belong to Jesus, but I walk in darkness and I hate people or I hate someone. Lifestyle is, I I say I'm a Christian and I walk with Jesus and I live in the light and I love people. The tagline for our church is, we open our Bibles to learn, we open our lives to Love. My hope, my prayer, my goal is to always open the Bible and help us be more loving, okay? And the, the result of good theology is healthy relationships. Okay? The result of good theology is healthy relationships. Love. When they came to Jesus and they said, okay, you're a teacher, all these commandments in the Bible, give us the cliff Notes summary. We wanna tweet out what the summary is. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you wanna condense it down, love God, love people, love. The fruit of the spirit is love. By this All men will know that you're my disciples if you love. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Love, (laughs) love. So to close, let's play Pictionary. Let's play Pictionary. Um, Some of you are visual learners and let me show you all of this. So we'll start with God the, Father, you know, for you kids too, you never write in cursive after you graduate. I don't know why they make you learn cursive. All you're gonna do, okay. So there's God the Father. His heart is a heart of love for his people, amen? Okay, and God the Father sends, who does he send? Come on kids, he sends Jesus. Now I gotta draw Jesus and I'm not a great artist. So we'll make Jesus with short hair Okay, because 1 Corinthians said in that day it was a disgrace for a man to have long hair. So we'll give him a short, and we'll make Jesus very happy. Okay, Okay? he's very happy, okay. And Jesus has a lot of love in his heart. And I tend to think of Jesus as having a thick neck and being fairly broad-shouldered because that just seems more holy to me, I don't know why. So there's Jesus, okay, okay. And over here we'll have, uh, Mrs. Christian Lifestyle, okay? Um, And we'll draw her with uh, curly hair, okay? And she too is very happy. Um, Kids, should we put a dress on her? Yeah, okay. Uh, We'll put a nice dress on her and she's got a lot of love in her heart and uh, she is wearing wedges, okay? So, okay. Um, my wife wears wedges. I've learned the difference between flats and heels and wedges. So Mrs. Life, Christian Lifestyle is wearing um, wedges. Now she and Jesus, they're friends and they hang out together. And the love of the father comes through Jesus and it goes to Mrs. Christian Lifestyle. And then from her, she gives away love to other people. She's loving. She'll forgive you. She'll be generous toward you. She'll be kind. And if she says or does something wrong, she's gonna come and apologize for it, okay? And then over here, we'll call it uh, Mr. Lip Service, okay? And he's far away from Jesus. He's actually got his back turned to Jesus, okay? And I think we'll put a backwards ball cap on him because he just seems rebellious, okay? And, uh, And he's not happy. He's very, he's very grumpy. Um, he's just very, very grumpy, and and his his whole life is is a trajectory away from Jesus. It's literally that he's not walking with Jesus. He's walking, he's walking away from Jesus. It's 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 literally walking away from Jesus. And uh, boy, if you sin against him, he's not going to forgive you. He's going to hold a grudge, and he's going to pour out his wrath on you and punish you. Mrs. Christian Lifestyle say, "Well, Jesus died, and the punishment was already made. So, if God forgives you, I forgive you too." Because what he says is, um, I'll read it to you again: uh, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. We're talking about here relationships between Christians. God's a father. We're brothers and sisters. We're a family. Jesus is our big brother who propitiates the wrath of God. He's the righteous one and our advocate. And we should live our life walking with Jesus, our big brother, and walking in love with our brothers and sisters. And this is the guy who says, I like to criticize Christians. I like to correct Christians. I like to fight with Christians. I like to tell them what they should do. I like to tell them how they should be. I like to sit on a Throne like I'm the judge and point out all the faults and flaws and failures in their life and the ways that they need to change and the way that they don't have it together and the things that they need to improve on. And he says, you know what? You may say you're a Christian, but you're walking in darkness, not light. And you're walking in hatred, not love, not love. Say, well, how are we gonna fix that? Well. Jesus wants to walk with you and he wants to forgive you so that you can be forgiving. And he wants to love you so you can be loving. And in my experience, sometimes the reason that this Christian hates this Christian is they've let their hurt turn into their hate. And the truth is, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will be hurt by another Christian. And the key is to not let your hurt turn into your hate. We love because we're loved. We forgive because we're forgiving. We walk with people because Jesus walks with us. And we don't pour out our wrath on our brothers and sisters because it was already poured out on our big brother, the Lord Jesus, do you get that? I want you to understand this is not something that you have to do, this is something that you get to do. This is a privilege and a lifestyle that is only made available to God's children. Only we can be forgiven and forgiving. Only we are truly loved and have the opportunity to be loving. Only we can walk with Jesus. And as a result, we have this invitation to walk with other people who are walking with Jesus. I don't wanna leave you hanging with guilt and shame and condemnation. I want you to hear the words of God for you. My dear children, you are the beloved. Therefore, walk in the light with Jesus and love one another. Don't walk in the darkness and hate one another. We will be a church, Lord willing, we're gonna love each other. We're not gonna speak ill of other Christians. We're not gonna bash other churches. We're not gonna criticize other leaders. We're gonna love. And if we believe that someone or something is wrong, we're going to draw near to them to establish connection before we provide correction. We will express our love and our appreciation and our affection for them before we have any correction or criticism of them. And everything will be done in this disposition of love and affection as the family of God. And, and you could pray for me. I wanna model this as well as I can. And we want to live this out as best we are able. I believe that God has brought us here and I believe that in time he will fill this room many, many times with thousands of people. Some of them will be Christians that have been hurt, and we want to love them so that they'll be healed and not turn their hurt into hate. Non-Christians will come in here, and they'll want to know what the essential message of Christianity is. And we, with a smile on our face and love in our heart, want to extend a hand of friendship and tell them about Jesus. Amen? And welcome them into the family of God. And when God does all the good things that God is planning to do, the one thing that could really undermine and destroy it is if even one of us decides to hate another of us. That, that brings darkness, that brings death, that brings the demonic. And God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And together because of the love of Jesus, we can walk in the light as he is in the light. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and allows us to have fellowship or friendship with one another as the children of God. That's the whole theme of the previous chapter. So I love you and it's a great honor and joy to be here with you. I look forward to the future that God has for us, but really it starts with the the loving father heart of God coming in the death and resurrection of Jesus and being placed in us through the person, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, so that the love of God flows not just to us, but through us so that others would encounter the love of Jesus when they encounter us. Father, thanks for an opportunity to teach today. Thanks for John's words. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your propitiation for our sins. It's a word that maybe we didn't understand until today, but that you would absorb the wrath of the Father, that you would substitute yourself for us, that you would divert the wrath from us, that you would take our place and put us in your place so that we could be the beloved, so that we could be the children of God. Lord Jesus, may we always, always celebrate that. May we never get tired of hearing that. May that be something that is new for us every day to remember and enjoy and may it inform and instruct and direct the way we interact with one another, starting with our friends, starting with our spouses, starting with our family members and our children. And Lord, I pray for the future of this church as we're in our infancy state. I pray that love would mark our relationships and that this house would be rooted and established in love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.